Hey, it's PNN, and I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It's Sunday, December 13th, just 12 days until Christmas, eight days until solstice. Happy holidays to everybody. Tonight, Rick Spizak interviews storyteller and poet Kevin Kiley, or Keeley, I'm not sure which. Uh, on the Justice Report, Janine Maloff looks at uh, the Texas uh, Attorney General, Ken Paxton, she looks at his challenge to the Electoral College, which went to the Supreme Court, um, and how states are overstepping their authorities and uh, in the service of trying to steal the election for Donald Trump. Uh, and I've got some thoughts on the leaked Joe Biden audio. All that's coming up in just a bit. But, um, you know, first, we like to do... We like to do this thing called the beat. What a week. There's a lot in the beat. A lot of beating around in this week. I guess. Uh, so, wow. Let's start here. Florida chairs race. The Florida chairs race. A bunch of people are starting to jump in to this. It was announced a week or so ago that Terry Rizzo, the current De- Florida Democratic State Party chair, will not seek re-election. Uh, and just previous to her announcement, uh, it was announced that uh Michael Bloomberg's best buddy, Manny Diaz, who's the former uh, mayor of Miami, would seek the chair's uh, position, even though he really hasn't done anything in, in state politics. But Michael Bloomberg wants him. Michael Bloomberg has a lot of money. Michael Bloomberg gave a gajillion dollars to the DNC this this time, and, and he for that money, what he would like in return is the Florida Democratic Party. So we'll see how that goes. There are some really good uh, progressive people who are right now uh, thinking about jumping in. And uh, here's my thoughts to you guys. Um, Pick one. Pick one and win this damn thing. We cannot have, we cannot have Michael Bloomberg, you know, who who wouldn't have any any uh, uh, Muslims on his on his campaign, you know, Michael Bloomberg, you know, racist Michael Bloomberg. I did a whole show on it, that long segments a couple weeks ago. He he cannot be running the state party. Um, and there's a lot of reasons, you know, which, which I talked about back then. But, you know, looking towards the uh, good progressives who are getting in, um, uh, we want to support them. And we want to make sure that, uh, that for once, the uh, Florida Democratic Party does the right thing and uh, brings it back to the people. There is... I really couldn't think of of anybody worse for bringing it all back to the people than what's getting set up with um, Manny Diaz and and the whole Bloomberg situation. So 
uh, let's look forward to that. That's that's coming up in in January, and uh, you know we'll we'll be talking about that a little bit more as things progress. But I don't want to I don't want to you know get too far in right now with uh, who's running or rumored to run or this that and the other. Let's wait and see to who announces officially and who actually gets in, and uh, we'll go from there. <clears throat> so uh, uh, there's that. Uh, this week, Tulsi Gabbard uh, filed a weird transphobic bill in the in the House. You know, it's it, it's she's she's in the twilight of her. Uh, serving as a member of Congress, and she decided that what she needed to do was to file this bill about how uh, uh, transgender people aren't allowed to compete in the sports at Title IX. Uh, Colleges are not allowed to participate in sports in the gender that they, other than the one they were assigned at birth. Okay. It's just the most bizarre thing. There's so many other things that you can do in the twilight of being a member of Congress. I don't know why anybody would go after this, uh, you know, to burnish their reputation as, you know, not, standing solidly with with the transgender people it, it was handled very badly and uh and uh really this is something that should be uh handled at, at the at the level of, of rules it's, it's not something that that needs to be a law and it's certainly uh it certainly wouldn't be something that i would you know, jump into in my last few days as a member of Congress. I mean, it's just the weirdest message to send. And it's been kind of fun watching uh, Tulsi stands, uh, you know, dance around it. Like, ah, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to address that. Bah. Um, why would you even care what I have to say and all this sort of thing? Well, you know, uh, the thing is, is that uh, progressives don't, uh, embrace politicians as saviors and as heroes, and when they screw up, you let them know. You, you, you know that's part of being a movement. Being in a movement means that you, um, you take feedback and you give feedback, and it has to be accurate in both directions for everything to work smoothly. And uh, this, this was just a big. This was just a big misstep. And I mean, imagine if Bernie had done that. You know, imagine if any, any, you know, it's just, it's just bizarre. Just absolutely bizarre. Uh, You know, and this is at the same time when uh, uh, YouTube host Jimmy Dore has laid down a challenge for AOC and is calling for uh, to bring Medicare for all to the floor for a vote and, you know, applying the kind of pressure that that people can apply who aren't in Congress, the kind of people who, uh, you know, have influence with their um, uh, media content and their 
social media presence and this and that. And, you know, he's catching a lot of heat and progressives are catching a lot of heat. Like, oh, why do you want to come down on AOC and blah, 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 you know, and and it's it's not coming down on the person. It is simply, you know, asking that these people who were elected on the premise of Medicare for all, asking that they actually fulfill that promise, you know, it's not enough to in other words it's not enough to just go out there and say oh you know i want to i want to be in congress and uh these are my issues you know I, I medicare for all everybody should have medicare for all you know it's not enough to just say that you got to actually do it and when people vote for you when we fill in a little bubble on our ballots to vote for people we're expecting you we're actually literally expecting you to go do the things that you said that you would do that's not that's not absurd. That's just expected. That's what that's what people do. Uh, so, so a lot of people got their noses out of joint about the uh, Jimmy Dore thing, and uh, and uh, you know that's to be expected. Um, there are people who uh, who gather around their favorite politician and create a little wall. And, you know, they say, well, I'm going to play defense, you know, and I'm going to punch anybody in the nose, metaphorically, who, you know, tries to, you know, come at my favorite politician. And, you know, first of all, that is the job of the staff of that particular politician. So if you're out on, on social media doing that work, <laughs> uh People are going to look at you like you're a you're an intern for, you know, for whoever it is, whoever it is you're standing for. And um, and rightly so, you know, because we don't know who we're talking to on social media. We don't know if if, uh, you, you know, we could be the K-Hive person that's that's giving you hell about this, that and the other. For all we know, could be, you know, a deputy comms person for the DNC. We don't know. And the fact is, is that, you know, the Brock operation has never gone away. There are still plenty of people who are paid to, uh, to cause all kinds of um, trouble on social media. And, uh, and uh, that's that, you know, I don't know what's going to come of the Jimmy Dore thing. I don't know if, uh, <clears throat> you know, it doesn't look like AOC is going to do anything with it. But by golly, he sure has a right to say say what it is that he said, you know, to, to make a call for Medicare for All, which is the thing that we, we've all come to the table for. I mean, I think that's what's brought a lot of us together is, uh, you know, I know that I got involved in politics way, way, way back uh, at least in democratic politics with Bill Clinton because he promised universal health care and I remember every speech he gave every state of the union every time he, he spoke I'd record the damn thing on the VCR and then rewatch it and rewind and try to find the place where he's you know given a signal like you know, where he's, where he's given us the high sign that uh, 
that this will be the year. This will be the year when it's introduced, or this is this is the way I'm going to do it, or you know whatever. You know, just trying to deconstruct it and uh, you know, put the puzzle together. You know, and so that was a long eight years. You know, of, of that. And while everybody like myself was waiting for that universal health care to happen. Instead, what they were doing was chipping away at reproductive rights. They were, uh, you know, making sure that corporations could form monopolies and screw us over. And they, uh, you know, made deals with the, with the, uh, getting rid of Glass-Steagall and the uh, Commodity Future Modernization Act and all that stuff that led to the um, crash in 2008, 2009. So. You know, there's a lot of history, you know, people have people who speak out like Jimmy Dore and ask for things to happen. They are coming from a place of having lived through that history. And they're just saying, look, you know, put up or shut up. You know, we elected you based on this. So let's get it done. And uh, and of course they don't want to get it done because what 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 it is is if it goes to a vote in in the house then you get to see who supports it and who doesn't support it and they don't want that they want to be all of these members of Congress want to be able to say that they support Medicare for all but they don't want to ever have to vote on it. And we saw this, we saw this in California, right? You know, they, they, they've got a super majority and could get anything done that they wanted to get done. And uh, after running on Medicare for the state of California or running on a um, universal health care plan for state of California, they made damn sure that that didn't come up for a vote. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Yeah. You know, we'll we'll see if it happens in the lame duck, and we'll see if it happens after the lame duck. But you know, right now, the United States has more deaths from COVID in a week than Canada has had through the whole pandemic. It's just crazy how out of control it is here, and the reason why it's so out of control is because people can't go to a doctor. You know, if you can't afford to go to a doctor, you don't have insurance and you've been laid off and you lost your employee sponsored healthcare, then, you know, how do you get a test? How do you get taken care of if you actually have COVID? You know, uh, so, you know, we've, we've got this pandemic raging out of control and uh, we don't have a, social safety net we don't have a, a healthcare system that can handle it so we're screwed that's why people are asking for a vote on medicare for all it's really it's really not that complicated it's it's just a, a to b pretty much um so with regard to covid there's a uh, vaccine has been approved the uh mrna I think that's why you say it, the mRNA vaccine, Pfizer vaccine's been approved and it's uh, leaving the warehouses and being transported and CNN and MSNBC have got all this footage of the 
the vaccination trucks leaving the warehouse and stuff. And so I guess some people are going to start getting the vaccine. I don't know who those people are going to be. You know, it's probably not going to be me. It's probably not going to be anybody I know. What most people are saying is that normal folks like you and me might have access to a vaccine come around May. And that means that we're going to have more and more weeks of 10,000 people dying at a time from COVID up until May. That's pretty bleak. That is pretty bleak, you guys. Um, let me just say with regard to uh, with regard to uh, COVID and stuff, um, you know, in a country where people don't have health care, in a country where people can't go to the doctor and can't get prescriptions and can't get medicine, uh, you have to learn skills to take care of yourself. And so there, there are definitely some prophylaxis methods out there. There is a, a protocol called the MATH, MATH Plus, M-A-T-H Plus. And this is a, a protocol put together by um, the FLCCC Alliance, which is a, um, a, a group of physicians and researchers. And Math Plus has been around for quite some time. And what it is is a number of supplements and medications that are administered when someone shows up at the hospital and are sick. Now, what I find interesting about this protocol is that there's a lot of stuff on here that we should be doing anyway just to make sure that our immune system is nice and healthy. And these are just, you know, normal things that, that we could be doing nutrition-wise. And by the way, people who, who get all bent out of shape that like, oh, Amazon sells all kinds of like, you know, woo-woo nutritional supplements. Well, you know why they sell all those supplements is that we have a country full of people who can't go see a doctor. So they're trying to take care of themselves the best way they can by keeping their system in tip-top shape. Now, one of the things that you can do to keep your system in tip-top shape uh, with regard to COVID is to make sure you are taking plenty of zinc. Zinc is cheap, y'all. It's very cheap. And it's a key uh, uh, supplement. It's a, it's a key ingredient <laughs> to making sure that your immune system is uh, going to I guess reject, you know, if there's zinc in your system, it makes it more difficult for COVID to bind in if you're exposed to it. So you want to make sure that you have zinc. You want to make sure that you have vitamin D. You want to have the kind of vitamin D that is a D3, um, calcifidol, calcifidol. That's a vitamin D3. The doctor can prescribe vitamin D2. That's not what they um, what they say is uh, is important for your immune system for for COVID. They say vitamin D, uh, and it's D3. That usually comes in supplements with uh, uh, vitamin D and vitamin K together. Um, they also say melatonin, thiamine, of course, 
uh, vitamin C. Uh, do, 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 these are easy things. These are easy things that you can do. Math plus protocol. They also have the uh, mask plus protocol, which is which is newer. Um, but, uh, but that's good stuff and that's, that's good stuff to know. And as we go into another holiday season, everybody's got to stay safe. Everybody's got to, you know, you got to see your family and you got to, um, you know, do that, do that thing that you do during the holidays. Um, but we got to make sure that we're not right before the vaccine comes out. We got to make sure that we're not, you know, the last people to get sick pretty much like that's a big fear of mine is that uh, uh, I'm the last person to get sick and die from something before the vaccine becomes available. That would totally happen to me. That is exactly something that would happen. So anyway, that is very important. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm just glad. I, I'm I'm just glad that it that 2020 is 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 nearly over. I am just really glad. And you know, as the year, here's another story. As the year closes out, we are looking back on some things. There are some. Uh, just this week, there was a, a autopsy report that came out from the Iowa caucus um, debacle uh, or fiasco, if you will. Uh, and it's in this this uh, report. I've read it cover to cover. Uh, shows that the DNC it was DNC meddling that led to the caucus debacle in Iowa. Now, just to refresh your memory, uh, uh, Iowa is a caucus state, and they're the first state in the country to do their primaries, and they fight for it like them and. And New Hampshire go back and forth and everyone's like, why is it a bunch of white states that go first? And why is it all that, you know? And so they they compete strongly to maintain their status as the first to vote and the second to vote and so on. Uh, there are people in Iowa that that's the only thing that happens in Iowa that, that, that they care about, you know, that, that happens. That's even interesting. because It's goddamn Iowa. And uh, so it's important to people in Iowa, not the way that in the way the DNC views it is not quite the same way as the way Iowa sees it. So so Iowa's got the Democratic Party in Iowa is between all different kinds of rocks and hard places in maintaining their first in a nation status. And they had this huge mess with the uh with the uh um with the caucus this time in twenty twenty. And that led to Pete Buttigieg claiming, claiming like Juan Guaido that that he won the 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 caucus when he hadn't. There they they hadn't counted all of the all of the precincts and they didn't have all their tallies in yet. But he claims that he won, and then it turns out that of course Bernie won. And then you know Bernie wins the 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 first contest, and then the the New Hampshire contest and. And, uh, you know, it doesn't get any media off of it. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but there's this 
uh, there's this, uh, hold on. We have a uh, autopsy report. And so Politico actually does a really good uh, uh, article on this. And this came out yesterday, and the the, the lead is uh, Democratic National Committee meddling combined with missteps by the state Democratic Party in Iowa were the primary drivers of the chaos that torpedoed the Iowa caucuses this year, according to a new audit commissioned by the state party. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the audit itself. It was conducted by Bonnie Campbell, a former attorney general of Iowa, who is now with the international law firm Sager Drinker. The team conducted dozens of interviews with top Iowa Democratic Party staffers, employees of Shadow, that's the app. Remember the app that Pete Buttigieg had, you know, paid $43,000 to the company to, you know, for whatever, we don't know. Um, and so they interviewed uh, all of these staffers and employees, representatives from Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg campaigns, which is weird because, like, there was somebody else in the mix there. Joe Biden came in fourth in Iowa. He was not the third anyway. Um, but the, odd, the really, really odd thing about this is, is that the DNC refused to participate in these interviews. They just refused. He said, no, 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 we'll pass. Will pass. Uh, spokesman for the DNC, David Bergstein, said um, that, that they were busy. They were busy this cycle um, doing work that helped contribute to President-elect Biden's historic victory. So they couldn't participate in any of that. Now, the meddling, what this consists of, is... It has to do with the conversion process. So at the very last minute, the, 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 the DNC demanded at the 11th hour, like right before the caucuses, that there was a thing called a conversion tool where the numbers would go through the DNC before being recorded. And they wanted a backdoor to all of the tallies. They said it was for security, you know, like that super important security measure. Um, but it wasn't something that had, that had ever been done before, and uh, it caused a lot of, a lot of messes. Uh, Politico writes, the report pins the blame squarely on the DNC for the heart of the problem on caucus night, the delay in reporting the results. According to the report, the DNC demanded the technology company Shadow build a conversion tool just weeks before the caucuses to allow the DNC to have real-time access to the raw numbers because the National Party feared the app would miscalculate the results. Like, this is just math. It's just, how did... That's like saying you don't trust your the calculator on your iPhone to give you the right answer. It's just what were they after here? Why were they demanding this access? I think that's the question that needs to be answered. The DNC's data system used a different database format than Shadows, and that caused problems, blah, 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 blah. 
The DNC's interjection into this process was the catalyst for the resulting chaos in the boiler room. And this was something that you might have heard a little bit about um, during uh, during the fallout from this. There was just all kinds of uh, uh, coverage of there weren't enough phones in the boiler room. Nobody was using the app. They didn't understand it. They didn't want to use it. They wanted to call in their results like they always had. And the phone system in the boiler room was completely cocked up. It just didn't work. So there's a, in the report, it says that uh, it even has a rundown of how many phone calls were, uh, were attempted to go through. And how many phone calls actually went through. And it's somewhere in the order of, oh, here it is. Um, there were a total of 55,816 incoming calls. Yeah, these were all of the precincts all over the state of Iowa on the night of the caucus of February 3. Of those, 2,097 were neither answered nor picked up by the system before the caller hung up. And 2,593 incoming calls were abandoned, where they just gave up. So it looks like only 1,126 of the calls came through. And that's, that's less than a fifth of the calls during, on, on caucus night. And reading from the, from the actual autopsy report itself and you can find all of this I'll, I'll put all of these links in the in the show notes uh in the conclusions the fager drinker fag fager drinker uh, uh autopsy report one of the conclusions is the dnc's database conversion tool contained a coding error i found this really interesting Shadow in the DNC's database conversion tool was created in the last minute and coded from scratch at the DNC's demand by a lone shadow employee in a matter of only a few days. Why just one employee? Why this last minute uh, demand? Shadow in the DNC ran some tests and tried to debug the database conversion tool, uh, but the project was simply started too late to ensure that the tool would work reliably. Attempting to graft an entirely new software element onto the back-end reporting system at the proverbial 11th hour is likely going to be problematic, and it was ultimately the cause of a major problem on caucus night. Furthermore, the Iowa Democratic Party was not involved in the development of this tool. The IDP, Iowa Democratic Party, simply permitted the DNC to direct the IDP's vendor, which was Shadow. Wow, that's hinky. That is so messed up. Now, they had had a year in they they'd started talking about this stuff way 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 early in in 2019 and they were supposed to have inked the deal in June and just gotten on their way but the DNC kept inserting themselves so that the uh the the deal didn't get made until like November just ridiculous foot dragging on this um 
I want to play this for you just to put you back in the state of mind of what things were like back then. This was a, this had become such a huge issue across the planet that it was spoken at, at the, uh, at the EU. So have a listen. Electoral interference. And yes, we're letting the Iowa caucus go without a mention. Now, Bernie Sanders is on top in the polls, even though we all know the Democratic Democrat establishment hates him. Then we find out that the Democrats used an app for the Iowa vote count built by a company that had taken 42,000 from another candidate, Pete Buttigieg. The app broke. The Democrats suppressed the results. Mr. Buttigieg himself comes out, announces himself the winner, and happy days. Now, if this was a reality TV show, we'd be laughing. If it was Iran, Syria, or Russia, we'd be suspending the debate here. We'd be apoplectic in our condemnation. But because it's the United States, that great country that spent so much time bringing democracy to the rest of the world, we say nothing. Well, it's a bad day and a blight on any semblance of democracy that this type of carry-on will go on. And I didn't want this uh, to pass without comment. And that was Claire Daly, uh, Irish politician who has been a member of the European pa- Parliament from Ireland for the Dublin constituency since July 2019. Uh, she is a member of uh, Independence for Change and the uh, EU uh, left Nordic Green, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, this had attracted so much attention that it got talked about at the EU, and she's absolutely right. If, as a matter of fact, we're saying the same <laughs> types of things about Venezuela in their election, and they didn't even have any kind of mess up. So if this had happened in any other country, we would be invading by now and saying, oh, no, this is some kind of despotic takeover. Uh, that's exactly the way we handle these things, and it's absolutely hypocritical that um, – that this was allowed to happen. And it's absolutely hypocritical that uh, it, it, and just outrageous that the DNC refused to participate in this audit. Oh my God. They are so bad. They're so bad. All right. We'll leave that there. And uh, I got some thoughts. I got some thoughts on this whole Biden, um, leaked audio that I'm going to play for you. So uh, I I just want to set this up a little bit before I roll it. The, uh, the, um, that is my neighbor emptying their uh, recycling outside my window. Uh, There was a meeting with uh, a number of civil rights leaders that it was conducted over Zoom where Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were present and they got to hear the concerns of the civil rights leaders. And someone leaked audio out to uh, The Intercept to Ryan Grimm, who then put it up on on. The Intercept and wrote a piece about it and everyone's been talking about it. So uh, here, here are my thoughts. Enjoy. Unsportsmanlike conduct costs a lot in a college football game. 
and it also costs a lot elsewhere. Now, last night, uh, Florida Gators were playing LSU in Gainesville. So here's what happened. They, the game was tied 34-piece, and LSU had the ball, uh, defensive back, um, Marco Wilson uh, had been a part of the play where they had just stacked the quarterback, and uh, one of the players had lost his shoe on the field. And Derek Wilson picks up that shoe and chucks it down the field for no reason at all, inexplicably, because he was so jubilant for, you know, having gotten the, the uh, sack there. And in college football, unsportsmanlike conduct is a huge penalty. So uh, so with a little under two minutes uh, still on the clock, if it weren't for this penalty, which was 20 yards, I think, um, and a full down, uh, if it weren't for that penalty, they would have won this game. And here's the kicker. They were set to head on to the playoffs. And that unsportsmanlike conduct not only lost this particular game for them, but now they're no longer in in uh, contention for the playoffs. That's how big of a deal unsportsmanlike con- conduct is and should be in college sports because, honestly, sportsmanship is the only goddamn fucking excuse to have college football. I, I, I'm not a fan, not a fan of college football, not a fan of football generally, um, but if you're going to have a college football program – the one thing that every member on the team is should be being taught and should be walking away with is that you conduct yourself with utmost unimpeachable sportsmanship, period. I mean, because number one, the penalties are huge, and number two, that's, that's, really, that, that, that's really why people are putting up with you. Now. You know what else is unsportsmanlike conduct? It's when Joe Biden thinks that he's going to tear into uh, civil rights activists who are participating in a Zoom call with him and Kamala Harris, thinks that he can just, you know, bite into them as if, you know, they're his opponent in some you know, college football game or something, and that that was somehow appropriate. So if, in case you missed it this week, a copy of audio was leaked to The Intercept, to Ryan Grimm, after this meeting, uh, because uh, I imagine people were just outraged after they had sat through this browbeating from Joe Biden. So, you know, here's, here's here's a taste. Here's here's a taste of the audio. Hold on. So here's the setup. Uh, these civil rights activists wanted and asked Joe Biden to use uh, executive orders to undo the shit that uh, Donald Trump has done with his executive orders. And if you've been listening to this show, uh, I've been week after week covering the day one agenda, which is up at the prospect uh, dot org. Uh, that's David Dan, uh, executive editor, has been working on this project for more than a year, where they've been looking at all of the types of things that are within the purview of uh, the executive 
branch of the government and can be done with executive order, with a stroke of the pen. Now, a lot of law is written in order to be administrated through the executive office. It's intentionally done that way, okay? Um, this isn't this isn't people, you know, asking for a power grab. This isn't people asking for Joe Biden to uh, uh, do something unconstitutional. And as a senator, as somebody who's been a senator for pretty much his whole career, he should know that laws are written in order for the executive branch to have purview over them. Now, it, one, of the, one of the laws uh, has to do with student loans, and the executive office has been given the uh, uh, ability to write down student loans, to cancel them, or to uh, delay them. Now, Donald Trump delayed uh, payments so that people didn't have to pay to the, into student loans while they're uh, while we're all suffering from COVID and COVID lockdown. Uh, and the reason why he was able to do that is because it was written into the bill and into the law. So take a listen to this uh, audio right here. And this is Joe Biden responding to one of the civil rights activists asking him to use executive orders uh, to undo some of this mess that Donald Trump has gotten us into. He starts out he starts out pretty level and then it kind of all goes to hell. So there's some things that I'm going to be able to do by executive order. I'm not going to hesitate to do it. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do what used to Benita, you probably used to get angry with me during the debates when you'd have some of the people you were supporting said, on day one, I'm going to executive order to do this. Not within the constitutional authority. I am not going to violate the Constitution. Executive authority that my progressive friends talk about is way beyond the bounds. And as a, a, one of you said, maybe you, Reverend now, whether it's far left or far right, there is a Constitution it's our only hope, our only hope. And the way to deal with it is where I have executive authority, I will use it to undo every single damn thing this guy has done by executive authority. But I'm not going to ex exercise executive authority where it's questioned, where I can come along and say I can do away with assault weapons. So it's interesting that he mentions assault weapons. We'll come back to that. Um, uh, David Dayan over at The Prospect, uh, him and his team identified 277 policies that can be enacted through executive branch powers, uh, and uh, 48 of the policies, or 17%, are rollbacks of Trump-era policy changes. Uh, there's 78 policies having to do with immigration. There's 54 policies having to do with climate change, and there's 54 policies having to do with the economy. Now, just on the Trump rollbacks, here's, here's an example of the type of things that we need to do, is rejoin the Par Paris Climate Agreement on day one. That's within uh, possibility. Uh, Reestablish and then improve upon pollution standards for clean cars and trucks. Reinstate the federal flood protection programs. 
Hello, Florida. Flood protection is very important to us. Reinstitute Obama-era executive order on military equipment transfer to police departments, which set certain bans and controls on certain equipment and altered the procurement process. Withdraw Trump-era guidance advising prosecutors to maximally pursue the harshest penalties possible. Reinstate Obama-era initiative to allocate law enforcement resources to most important priorities, along with other systemic changes. All of this is, is just normal kind of cleaning up stuff that you would do. None of this is, is bizarre or, or a, a, a big ask. And so I have to wonder what got so under Joe Biden's skin. Because he goes on. There's more. I don't carry around a stamp on my head saying progressive and I'm AOC, but I have a more of a record of getting things done in the United States Congress than anybody you know. Anybody you know. Okay, that seems a little out of place. That seems a little like, uh, you, you know, it's, it's not like these civil rights leaders were, you know, giving him a tongue lashing. Right. Uh, they were all sitting down to talk about how they can work together. And here he is uh, with a very bizarre uh, outburst having to do with uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, so, you know, I think that there's probably some conversations that go on. Uh, you know, behind the scenes where there's a little bit of, yeah, maybe he's a little bit sore. Maybe he just, maybe he doesn't feel as uh, uh, confident or, or you know, as vital as, as he used to. And, and he feels the need to, uh, you know, lash out at the, uh, at the uh, youngins out there in the, in the Congress. Who knows? Who knows? But that was unsportsmanlike right there. Now, here's another one that is pretty unsportsmanlike. By 2040, this country is going to be minority white European. Hear me? Minority white European. And you guys are going to have to start working more with Hispanics, who make up a larger portion of the population than you all do. Now, that was directed at African-American activists, civil rights activists. He wasn't talking to white European activists, you know. He wasn't talking to, like, me, right? He was talking to a, a group of, I think, like, eight or seven or eight or nine civil rights activists. Why would he go after them like that after spending the entire election talking about how he's the only person in the world that black people will vote for? Like, that's that's who that's what <laughs> okay so so he lays that weird smack down about uh about latino population rising or the expected rise by 2040 and he says that to these activists in order to put them in their place unsportsmanlike conduct He's trying to put them in their place so that they know not to get all up in his stuff anymore, right? (laughs) 
so they know better than to, you know, come to him with any kind of uh, wants, needs, or desires, Yeah, because what you're going to get is a big face full of Joe Biden losing his mind, right? But now here's the thing that really gets me about this uh, this particular thing with the uh, Latino voters, you know, that he used as a hammer to hit the African-American people over the head. Here's what he just said about immigration. So this comes from NPR. Although, although Biden promised to reverse Trump's most restrictive immigration policies, he didn't include immigration among his top four priorities, which are the coronavirus, economic recovery, racial equality or equity, and climate change. This was intentional, said a person familiar with the transition discussions. He told NPR that the Biden campaign and then the transition team felt that immigration activists had become too adversarial. Quote, this is a this is a, a, a quote from the anonymous person talking to NPR. Quote, there are a number of people within Team Biden who are just uncomfortable with a lot of the policy initiatives that they recommend immigration activists, which is why you saw Biden's four core issues and immigration was not one of them. I'm telling you, unsportsmanlike conduct. Again, what you're seeing here is a pattern where if an activist or an activist group annoys Joe Biden, he lashes out at them. You know, this is the same person who is who says, you know, words matter and 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 what the president says matters and you know, everything's supposed to be about being um uh, uh convivial and congenial and change the tone from where it was with Donald Trump to something better and instead of being something much better, we have this. For some context, uh, these these uh, civil rights activists are going around the horn and uh, people are coming and going out of the group. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And I think one or maybe two had dropped off the call at this point. But the call has gone on for an hour and there's 40 minutes after they go around the horn. And this includes Joe Biden talking to, you know, and, and Kamala by, by way of in, introduction. Uh, then Joe Biden, from this point on, it's all him for about 40 minutes. Now, listen to what, listen to how he kicks off this, this 40 minute rant right here. We have an opportunity here. We want to make sure we seize. By the way, this is the setup here is uh, it's the last activist going around the horn, and he's saying we have an opportunity here, and people in the communities are, are getting anxious because they're not seeing the kinds of appointments that they would like to see come out of a, a president that made the promises and ran on the African-American community like Joe Biden did. And so he's motivating this. He's bringing this to the table, and he's saying, uh, here's what I'm hearing outside. Uh, what is your response? I'm just going to lay it out. And that's that's what this guy is doing right here. 
this opportunity and allowing for the input necessary. Ten more appointments to go. A lot of people in our community are getting a little anxious because they are not seeing enough of the progress they thought they would have seen at this point. Let's not disappoint them and let's not get to a place where voters in Georgia begin to second guess. Okay, let me respond. I've got to go. And let me just say, like, great. So, so throughout this whole thing, Joe Biden's looking at his watch, uh, you know, just just kind of like staring blankly. It's uh, he's he's having a really hard time focusing. It is so obvious from from watching this, and everyone's been very. Uh, convivial. Everyone is genuflected appropriately, yada, yada, yada. You know, nobody is, you know, taking him to task. And, you know, of course, the, the, the people to speak to him have been handpicked to be the kind of people who are not going to take him to task. Like, they're not going to put me in front of him, right? <laughs> so uh, the moment someone says something challenging, this is how Joe Biden comes back. And the first thing he says is, is you know, I, I got to get out of here. I don't have time for this. And that's that's the very first thing he says. I'm back up just a little bit so you can hear that again. And here we go. In a second guess. Okay, let me respond. I've got I've to go. Let me respond. There's a lot to respond to here. Let's get something straight. You shouldn't be disappointed. What I've done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. Okay, number one. Number two. I mean what I say when I say it. I mean what I say when I say it. I'm the only person who's ever run on three platforms that I was told could not possibly win the election. And I never ceased from it. One was on restoring the soul of this country. Spoiler alert. He doesn't give you the three things that he ran on. He just talks about, he just kind of rambles on about this uh, 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 running on, on racial issues. And he claims that no one else uh, called out Donald Trump for being a racist and that no one else mentioned Charlottesville and that no one else had mentioned you know, anything having to do with racial issues, which is remarkably false. It's not just a little bit false. It's not just a little bit of coloring around the edges. It is Blatant, stupid lie. Why would he say this? And I'll let him continue. What I saw happen in Charlottesville. That was it. No one else was talking about it. The words of presidents matter. Nobody else, no progressive, was talking about it. I did. My son, Bo, used to have an expression. He said, remember, Dad. Remember, Dad. Home base. It ain't worth the job if I can't say what I believe. I didn't want to run this time. I ran this time because of the racist son of a gun who was president of the United States of America. That's why I ran. And you'll remember, a lot of you told me, talking about the soul of America, was going over people's heads. They didn't know where... No one thought that. No one said that. The soul of America. You know, if people were were, were tugging his sleeve, they were saying, uh, you know, this is is too obtuse. You know, like, just just say say what it is. You know, it's... (laughs) Joe Biden is a freaking train wreck. And I'm watching this, and and I I keep thinking, well, at least Kamala Harris is there, and I can't 
stand Kamala Harris. I revile her. I find her revolting, okay? And I find her supporters revolting. And, um, and uh, you know, the K-Hive. But I find myself hoping to God that she is in charge of operations, in charge of getting things done. Because this guy, this guy does not have his feet on the ground at all. All right, continuing. Talking about the words of a president matter. What a president says matters. And you've never seen me shy away. In the middle of the debate, I called him a racist. In the middle of the debate with him, I took on white supremacists. I'm the guy that took on every single time somebody was threatened in this country. The only white boy you know who did it. I'm the guy. So the uh, any time a person was 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 threatened racially in the country, Joe Biden was the only person to come and save them somehow. Like now now he thinks he's like the freaking Green Lantern or something. He thinks he's like, you know, some some kind of a super uh super friend, you know. But but not not really a good friend because unsportsmanlike behavior, he is unwilling to share any kind of uh credit with anyone else for being part of a movement for civil rights. It's it's remarkable. Continuing. Out there. Every single time. So look, all I'm saying here is, guys and ladies, we're on the same exact page. The same exact page. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not on the same page at all. As a matter of fact, every time the activists had a, a concern or, or a point that they wanted to bring up, he had to push them back, you know, so they're not on the same page. Uh, you know, we got a problem here. We've got a major problem. Look, Joe Biden is not Donald Trump. Yay. Great. We don't have Donald Trump in office anymore. We have someone who has, uh, who has been uh, a friend of, uh, of financial institutions above all else. Okay, and this at a time when we absolutely need decisive action. We need it yesterday. You know, we can't wait any longer. Um, but you know, here we are. Here we are. Now, there's a couple of other things that that happened in this discussion. Um, some are uh, bigger than others. You know, he went on a big tear about how. Uh, you got to stop about you got to stop talking about defund the police because because that's going to be super inconvenient for uh the Senate races in Georgia which by the way people vote on January 5 so after the 5th of January uh we can i assume start talking about uh black lives the movement for black lives again for god's sakes he's not going to get a pass on that He's he's proposed three hundred million dollars to give the, to the police instead of defunding the police. He wants to give them three hundred million dollars more. All right. What these activists were were talking about as they went around the horn, most of them were talking about police abuses, needing accountability, uh, the voters' voter rights 
Uh, those were the two things that you heard over and over from every activist, is you've got to do something about the police and you've got to do something about the voting rights. And, you know, this this really got under his skin and he got a little weird about things. So I want to play you one of the weirder moments right here. I am incredibly optimistic. Let me tell you why. I'm incredibly optimistic because society is changing. The Z generation and young millennials are changing. Now, you're not going to maybe agree with what I'm about to say, but take a look at what is happening. Fifteen years ago, could you turn on the television and see three or four out of seven commercials be biracial commercials? What do you think, guys, huh? What do you think? You want to know where society's going. Watch entertainment. Watch the profit motive. Why are these commercials so many of them biracial? Why are there so many biracial? Like, what? what is he even talking about? Biracial commercials? Like, like oh, Oh, so there was a there was a, a, a African Americans are represented in tampon ads. We've done it. Yes, we can. Oh my God, this is this is insanity. This is absolute insanity. I don't see how anybody can watch this. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing that went on during the primaries. I don't see how anybody could have watched him during the primaries, during the debates, and thought that that was someone who needed to be driving anywhere, much less running the entire country. So the reason why Joe Biden is optimistic looking into the future, that long gaze, he looks down the road and he sees, quote, biracial commercials on the television. That gives him hope. Well, you know, that doesn't give me hope. <laughs> it's, it, and I spe- speaking as somebody who's, who's been in the advertising uh, business for most of my career, uh, let me tell you, uh, when, when <laughs> what, what winds up in advertising only has to do with what corporations want to spend money on. And he says that, you know, he says that it's a commercial interest. You know, so so this is this is a uh, this is neoliberalism in a nutshell. You know, he wants you to be optimistic, not because there's some policy that he's that he's going to talk about and, and get done, because he didn't do any of that. Instead, he pushed back on all the policy. He wants you to instead be optimistic because corporations are representing people of color in their marketing campaigns. That is so wrong. That is so wrong on on every level. Like like corporations would like people of color to to give them their money as well, and that is progress to to Joe Biden. It is the most insane thing I have heard a politician say uh, uh, who isn't Donald Trump. I guess I, I, Donald Trump makes more goddamn sense than that. So so we're screwed. We're absolutely screwed. We got four years of this, you know, and and I'm coming from the uh, standpoint of having lived through eight years of Ronald Reagan. 
I started college in 1984, and, uh, you know, Reagan was president 1980 through 1988, and uh, we found out later that he had had Alzheimer's for the entire second term and that they had been covering up for him. And the the thing is is that he had probably had the onset way before that, and uh, people had been pointing it out for a really long time. So I'm glad Kamala Harris is there to, you know, kind of pick up the mess behind him and, and hopefully do some operational stuff. But uh, this is not good. This is absolutely not good. I want to say one other thing, too. You know, if you really wanted, if you really wanted to make sure that um, people didn't uh, uh, talk about defunding the police before the January 5 uh, Senate vote, the, the runoffs in Georgia, if you want to really make sure that that no one talks about defunding the police, don't don't wag a finger at the activists. How about you direct that message to the police and tell them not to kill anybody between now and then? Because I tell you what, that is what people are responding to. Every single one of the uh, of the uh, um, uprisings had to do came right on the heels of of a. Uh, an outrageous murder of an innocent person. That's why people talk about defunding the police. We don't do it for our health, for God's sakes. It doesn't, it doesn't add anything. All right, I'm going to leave it there, and we'll be right back with more PNN. I have a bit of an agenda. I'm going to show you that I've done a bit of... Um, I'm going to read a couple of lines of Walt Whitman. Please do. Please do. Uh, it's called Long, Too Long America. Hey, I'm just going to come in here real quick. I thought that Rick might do an introduction to his piece. This is uh, Kevin Kiley, Poet in conversation with Rick Spizak. I want to make sure that everybody's aware of that um, as they listen. So enjoy. I have a bit of an agenda. I'm going to show you that I've done a bit of... Um, I'm going to read a couple of lines of Walt Whitman. Please do. Please do. Uh, it's called Long, Too Long America. It's only Rick's seven lines. Long. No problem. Too long, America, traveling roads, all even and peaceful. You learn from joys and prosperity only. But now, ah, now, to learn from crises of anguish, advancing, grappling with direst fate and recoiling not. And now to conceive and show to the world what your children en masse really are. For who except myself has yet conceived what your children en masse really are? 
That's it. That's the vault. Good stuff. And it seems to be on the um, the pulse of the moment, doesn't it? Well, <laughs> there's there's certainly a reckoning. You know, I I was talking to a a British poet friend of mine, uh, Dominic Windrum. Yeah. And he was saying it's interesting the fact that people have been torn away from their amusements, forced to spend a little time with themselves, spend a little time with their family. And uh, a lot of people have difficulty with that. Do you think so? I mean, I'm not going to come across now as the, the wise acre on the sage. I'm going to extend it a bit further. I, Of course, it's been, you know, 2020, a year that will be infamous in history, absolutely infamous. It'll be probably one of the most significant years for, you know, since 1939 or whatever, 1945. But sure. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of my own survival. I believe, yes, people are suffering and have suffered, but I think there's, there must have been a learning exchange for everyone. I, I feel, do you not, I feel quite changed. I feel, I think actually very changed. How about you? Well, it has been a time of change for me in a lot of arenas. What I what I think is invaluable to us, despite the fact that they may call this the plague of 2020, I think there's been, you know, a reckoning with the fact that we have among us in this civilization a lot of people who really are still geared for the dark ages. And, and right. you know, if that's their choice, that's their choice. You know, you can't say to someone, science is real. If okay. they do not, if they've managed to somehow make their way into adulthood and they fail to grasp the necessity of a scientific outlook in this technological world, there's very little you can say except I hope you get the idea soon enough before you're What I would say is that, um, strangely because I'm hyper-individualist, but I do agree with you, but I also will admit I was not surprised that the entire, you know, series of divisions and the fact that the entire plague very quickly became politicized. And I think that's something that's not, that's not uncommon in civilization from the Middle Ages, from the Renaissance certainly onwards, that anything, a war, a plague, it's immediately politicized. And You know, it benefits certain power structures to frame it that way. Sure. And, and you know, those of us who, you know, got the idea in, in the Renaissance of what the point of the Enlightenment was, you know, we, we are sort of puzzled, I think, in large part that, you know, people we knew, people we grew up with, people we've lived around can still have these, what's a good way to put it, antiquated notions? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you'd have to we'd have to specify as well. But what I'm grasping at here is, I mean, and I want to certainly rush up to the 21st century because that's where we are. But I'm thinking (laughs) thinking of even in the Renaissance, there was the outpouring of 
there was the introduction of science. But I can even look back and see now that Leonardo da Vinci, who was being used as an engineer, when he showed people certain images of what laterally became flying machines, this ties into your remarks, they said, no, we're not interested in those blueprints. So <laughs> this is a feature. This is a feature of the collectives and the different collectives within islands and countries and states and what used to be called principalities. And for God's sake, Rick, I mean, there's a lot of talk about progress. You know, there's library books. <laughs> and one thing that the plague has shown me and has thrown me back to, because I've been looking at some, as you know, I'm a poet, I'm a scholar, this is my this is my life vocation. I've been thrown back into reading Hasidic mysticism and the plagues of Egypt, and I've been saying to myself, "Oh gosh, this is this is <laughs> this is the same terrain." <laughs> the Pharaoh is saying to the Israelites, um, almost saying, "Well, you know, you better get the masks out there." Saying, "No, we don't need the masks." You know, I mean, it's all it is on history is uncannily full of repeating cycles. I don't have to put myself up as a as a sage to say that. It is just uncannily repeatable. Well, there's a marvelous old saying by uh, Sam Clemens. Uh, he said, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's strange. You, you, I'm glad you bring that up because... Uh, I'm not shy about saying over here where I live in Dublin um, some of the attention I've received is for criticizing this Seamus Heaney poet, you know. And he stole these lines from Whitman, from, I mean, Samuel Langhorne, Clemens, Mark Twain. And people quote lines where he says history and hope rhyme. And you see, the guy never acknowledged that he took them from another poet, etc. Et <laughs> but I won't get into the poetry wars, which I enjoy, or maybe I will. But going back to the main agenda, uh, I think even the some of the coverage I've seen from your country, naturally, you know, the you know the White House, the potential White House coup. The potential coup on Twitter. Um, of course, there's been panic. The number of affidavits. I'm not going to use that guy's name because I'm not an American citizen. The number of affidavits written from the White House and their team. Uh, the extraordinary tests on democracy. But yet then I've watched and heard where the judiciary has seemingly stemmed all this. It's fantastic in a way. And... Some of the literature I'm now getting into reading, which I think is is come I think this is what the what he has brought to bear on everybody is that anybody can get up on Twitter. I can get up on Twitter tomorrow and say that I'm the king of Florida. And then you can take some photographs of me and uh, <laughs> you, you can say he is. I was speaking with him on Skype and he actually is now the king. He's gone. He's also the president of Florida. 
And we can get a hundred people to say, yeah, Kevin's the president of Florida. He's moving over there to Miami and he's going to be moving. The governor will have to move out. He's going to move into. And suddenly, suddenly, of course, it's a load of lies. It's a load of BS. But you might have one or two people would say, Absolutely, I, I think he's, he's 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 definitely the president of Florida now. So that's what's tremendous, and I just I'm I'm involved in content, but I'm always more involved in language. So I'm going to claim that a lot of public media words I see I I see through them because professionally what I do. I'm working with language all the time, the way an engineer or a carpenter are working with materials or the way a physicist or chemist or the medical profession at the moment are working with vaccines. I, I, I'm working in, in a particular element, which is language. So there's no Twitter or slogan that knocks me down, you know. Let's make America great again. Let's make cheese great again. Let's make chicken great again. I, I, I see through slogans uh, because... When I was young and began to write, I uh, formed a very, very strong association with language. I won't go on too much about it. It's, it's quite a self-conscious thing. So the whole sloganistic online thing, to me, is very diminutive, Rick. When I see, you know, boasts and snorts and hate stuff, I look at the construction and I'm almost able to see a sort of an x-ray through the type of person who has said these things. The phraseology is what I look at. So generally speaking, I, 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 I treat language the, you know, the way a geologist goes into the Grand Canyon and he's not really, he's not, he's not sightseeing, he's looking at the different gradations and the different layers of rock and the different fissures. That's just what we call, you know, being a professional. So let, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. It's it's so wonderful to have a poet of such depth, and uh, I'm I'm going to say scope. Okay. Now let me ask you. A poet's role in society, it seems to me, can be can be twofold. Either as critic, bringing to the fore issues that may not be fully. Uh, understood, comprehended by by the mass, or we can entertain and lift their spirits, and and of course the whole genre in between. But when you think about the responsibility of a literary man, of a philosopher, of a poet, do we have a responsibility? You think to speak truth, especially in an age where there's so much mendacity? Well. This is where uh, all humanity are equal, you know. It's something, and I, I, I will address your question. I noticed during this lockdown, I began looking at snails on the wall out here. I think one was, you know, one was, I think everybody got closer to nature because we're, otherwise, before the pandemic, we're all zooming around. We probably don't, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, material I've read is people have almost gone back to nature, which of course is there all the time. It hasn't gone away. But going back to the concept of yes, I think the the present tenant of of the White House, whose lease is up now in a couple of days or weeks. Up on, up on the 19th of January. I have a, an old suitcase here that I that I could send over if they need extra suitcases to pack their stuff in. But um, the deal is that 
you see, when you look at people like, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, I was looking at Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, one of them have come out with a book, and there's going to be a lot of psychological analysis, there's going to be a lot of psychiatric ana analysis, and I'm not going to throw the obvious slurs on this particular chap, but the presidents of the United States, of which I've dabbled in their writings, when you go back to uh, George Washington was not a particularly scholarly man, but never claimed to be that. And Washington himself, I notice that the present incumbent hasn't mentioned people like this in any of his Twitters or speeches. But Washington wanted to closely look at the term of office. Now, I noticed that the present incumbent, some of the journalists over here and people I, I talked to, uh, they said one of the things that wasn't bizarre but was said as a taunt by the present incumbent was, why don't I extend the term of office? Why don't I become, pre why don't I become president for, for, for my whole life? So a lot of these, this is where people in Europe, Rick, are saying, uh, American democracy, there, there wasn't a coup d'etat. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that there wasn't and there won't be a coup d'etat. I don't see an, a military standoff between now and the 20th of January with people shooting off Pennsylvania Avenue into the White House. You know, something like a, an 18th century uh, shootout or 19th century shootout. So the only questions that have to be asked is America has this constitution and it just has to check very carefully the executive powers particularly the supreme court which is powers which is way outside my understanding and i have not read all the documents and all the responsibilities and oaths of office and dictates that these bench people are meant to uphold and have upheld against the affidavits so affidavits so i think it's it's quite a calm situation uh, because the democratic principle uh, plays out, an election was held, the popular vote went to the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, the only thing a lot of journalists said over here, this might sound quite cheeky, but I think it's very wise, the electoral college system seems to be quite loaded. It would, to me, look far better for American citizens, you know, executing their franchise to, to vote in the candidate who gets the most votes. I would make it very, very plain and simple. What do you say? What kind of civilization has a leader or an ostensible leader who says he could murder someone in the street and walk away. Uh, if, if there's if there's any greater self-indictment, I, I can't imagine what it would be. Yeah, I, I think it's it's all it's yes to it. Every um, criticism that has been made of him, uh, every rational criticism is completely accurate. But I like to go behind the Constitution, and I like to go behind what I've read about uh, uh, American constitutional. The American constitutional politics is the issue here. I'm not afraid. I'm one of those willful, carefree, free-thinking spirits who's not. I'm not afraid of dictators. You know, once of course I'm not in one of their jails or, or living under their their, 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 their 
people like me will be picked up very quickly and you know and have been in, in, in these situations so it's a bit of a luxury looking on but I never felt for a moment and it was of course naturally within the it was the great finale we hope to the to the pandemic this election in America was was frontline you know was the greatest show in town I don't I'm not saying anything dangerous there I hope but it was delightful to see the machinations of the democratic institutions challenging all this material that was thrown at them and you know we've got voting systems here uh, you've had you it's not most countries have problems we had a we had a situation here where a government was brought down over the appointment of an attorney general who was illegally appointed there was a vote in the chamber the government fell most most situ, most um, countries have these debacles uh, you know, there's always been the right wing in France challenging and it's building up and building up. And democracy, you know, comes in whatever, the two flavours or the nine flavours. And, you know, there's a lot of difficulties in Germany with right wing groups. Uh, I could go on and on and on. I can then mention, and I, I don't believe the Russians are looking for me, and I'm involved with Russian literature in, in being a, a supporter of some of the great Russian poets and writers. But everybody knows that Vladimir Putin, you know, was commissar, chairman, or president for a while, retired for a year or two, and then suddenly came back and became leader again. But that's exactly what the, you see, it's very easy. What the present incumbent of the White House would like is to get a load of blotched legal documents typed typed up with bad phrasing i've seen some of the bad phrasing and it's quite remarkable that some of his some of his lawyers i don't mind none of these people are going to challenge me i don't mind saying that some of the phrasing and syntax have that hysterical turn of phrase that a lot of legal documents do not have but he wanted to frame a document go to the supreme court where they would say oh you know what Let's make him president until the day he dies. Long may he live. Let him live to be 95 and be the president. But that's not going to happen. And I don't think that was ever going to happen. What a person thinks in their own head, or what a person fantasizes, and then if you make them the president of a country in the United States, that's just what you're seeing. You're seeing a person who suddenly thinks, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Four years, I want to stay on for eight years. Well, what, what am I talking, eight years? I want 12 years. I'm going to build a golf course right outside the Oval Office. I don't even have to go across town. You know, I can... So, I mean, uh, that, that is the type of... Um, I don't. I don't know if you. I don't want that kind of power. I. I. I have a different uh, power in my own life. I don't want any kind of public office. I don't want to be involved in any kind of politics. But um, I'm putting my own keen eye onto it. Uh, the thing that will happen, which is inevitable, is after the inauguration in 2021. Uh, presumably. Uh, Senate and House of Representatives, and, uh, President and Vice President, carry on with uh, American politics and American democracy. I know this sounds simplistic, but that's there's no possibility that America is going to be overtaken, is it, by 
the the regiments. He doesn't. It was it was interesting. People over here, commentators mentioned and said, why can't he call in you know nine divisions of the American Marines to surround uh, the White House and say that's it, I'm staying. I'm staying for 12 years. I mean, that hasn't happened. I, I don't see it happening in a country like the United States. The only issue that remains, which is uh, considered in terms of postage stamp history, as they say, is that the, the racial civil war, the divide that every country has, we have it here, we've got three divides in Ireland. Uh, England has a massive divide, a massive problem. Uh, with racism, a massive problem. Uh, London Tories and white English people do not like the fact that the number of immigrants for non-English uh, ancestry, uh, non-Brits, you know, Brits are gone up to 30% of the population. So that's not a new issue either. It just seems to me such an indictment of civilization per se, that it still seems that police feel emboldened to murder at will. Mm-hmm. And we see it day after day after day, in case after case, and we can protest, and then the protests are assailed, and we can complain, and the complaints are assailed, but it just can't seem to move them off that dime. You know, some of us are civilized. Why can't we move this thing? Why can't we change? Are, are humans so ultimately flawed that this is a, a, an unaddressable issue? Well, one of the things I would throw, which is a, a subversive remark that I would throw, and I'm going to re- read some more lines in a minute. There's a tremendous historian political analyst called Eugene Kogon, K-O-G-O-N. And it's a tremendous book on totalitarianism in the 1930s in Germany. Germany, I know, unfortunately, uh, and historically, is the, the obvious example. But in one of the chapters, what he says eventually is that totalitarianism, it clones so he says that when you come up to 1938 in Berlin and when you have these rallies, and we, you, we saw some rallies in the United States, not exactly swastika rallies, but of course there was the right-wing totalitarian approach that you felt this mob, you know, you have to say that the voting, the voters behind the present incumbent tots up to, to a staggeringly high uh, uh, mark in millions. I don't have the exact figure. But what Kogan would say is that most of those are a clone of the man in the White House. To a certain degree, now not exactly, but to end on Kogan, Kogan says that most Germans were a clone of Adolf H in 1939 and thought, do you want to, should we do this? Should we do that? Yes, do this, do that, do that. Genocide, uh, you know, invade this country, take this, take that, take these buildings. And when you read the extraordinary amount of what you call fake politics, that is the legacy of the present incumbent. He has shown that you can have fake speeches, fake politics, and then you can do really evil things behind that, and you can get people, naturally, in history, this is not a huge revelation. This did not happen first in the 20th or 21st century. 
you can get the multitude behind the despot. Despots are not people like you and I who don't have 75 or 60,000, 60 million voters. You can get a whole, what they call over here. I don't mind insulting this man. I mean, I don't think he's going to gonna go for me and I'm not going to go for him. You know, I mean, with, with boxing blows. But you get the 60 million people who become the the monolith but i think without adding to the anxiety of the world uh, the real danger was the the medical policy of the white house which in a way i'm not the first to say it but history will record that it was involved in the taking of human life by not acting responsibly and medically. That's the huge, 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 huge um, factual claims that you can make against this administration, that they did not act ethically and medically. The whole area of masks, social distancing. What I think is an appalling atrocity and you, you're talking COVID deaths or atrocities. They're medical atrocities that, that may and could have been prevented. And that was Rick Spizak in conversation with poet and storyteller Kevin Keeley. That was wonderful. Oh, my gosh. Running a little bit late, but we've got Jenny Moloff on the line, and she's done some last-minute changes to her segment, and I can't wait to hear it. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. Well, I'm going to do my best, okay? We've had kind of a crazy week, okay? Um, past week, we've witnessed the GOP of Trump disgrace themselves further along a trajectory of what can only be called collective governmental malfeasance, attempted subversion of the public vote and seditious abuse of law to what can only be called a treasonous level. <clears throat> Excuse me. The GOP of Trump continues to sink to lower levels than even I could have previously imagined. In addition to attempted vote theft by this um, lawsuit I'm going to discuss uh, uh, initiated by the Texas AG Ken Paxton, um, there's been called by GOP leaders uh, for succession from the union, people like uh, GOP Texas leader Alan West. There have been a few heroes, specifically New Jersey Congressman Pat Grell, who cited a little-known part of the 14th Amendment as grounds to refuse to seat GOP congressmen who supported this elected, this attempted election nullification that I'm about to discuss. So let's Let's first take, quickly take a look at the two lawsuits that have been dubbed by many legal experts as, quote, a seditious abuse of the judicial process, end quote. Now, the two central figures in these garbage suits are the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and, in my home state of Missouri, the Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. <clears throat> so first, the garbage case. Now, by now, every state... As of December 8th, every state in the union hit what's called safe harbor, which meant their electors had already been decided for the electoral college. But the Texas AG attorney general filed a lawsuit that everybody's talking about now where he contested the election results 
in four um, really important uh, battleground states that pretty much decided the election. That was Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Now, I'm citing an article that was published in the Texas Tribune by Emma Playtoff, and this was as of December 8th, actually. And so Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton filed suit, um, and he sued four battleground states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And their election results handed the White House to Joe Biden. Now, in the suit, Paxton is claiming that the changes necessary because of the pandemic to election procedures violated federal law. And he was asking the Supreme Court to block states from voting, those states from voting in the Electoral College. The idea being that if their slate of electors as decided by the actual election couldn't vote in the Electoral College, then the state legislatures in those four states, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that's dominated by Republicans would then appoint um, basically electors to the Electoral College that are Trump loyalists, and Trump could steal the election that way. And it was the last minute, and they're claiming that, of course, there was a lot of election fraud. Well, the problem is this. There's been zero evidence of any widespread election fraud. Even, Even Trump's own AG, Bill Barr, had to admit that Biden won in the four states where Paxton challenged the results. So, you know, basically Paxton's claiming that these four battleground states broke the law, they made changes because of the pandemic, uh, and to quote him, quote, whether through, quote, executive fiat or friendly lawsuits, thereby weakening ballot integrity, end quote. Well, <clears throat> sorry about that, my asthma's kicking up. The thing is this, the Supreme Court said, no, the Supreme Court said, we're, there, there's no grounds, and um, for several reasons. Now, it wasn't just the Supreme Court. Okay, that happened Thursday. But the states involved also filed uh, responses. So in Georgia, the Secretary of State there, Brad Raffensperger, who is a Republican, recertified the election results this Monday after another recount. And, you know, Basically, they said, look, these allegations by the Texas AG have no merit. And their depu- Georgia's Deputy Secretary of State, Jordan Foops, was quoted as saying the following, quote, the allegations in the lawsuit, in other words, the Texas lawsuit, are false and irresponsible. Texas alleges there are 80,000 forged signatures on absentee ballots in Georgia, but they don't bring forward a single person as who this happened to. That's because it didn't happen, end quote. The Michigan Attorney General, who's a Democrat, Daniel Nessel, um, said Paxton's suit was, quote, a publicity stunt, not a serious legal pleading. And she went on to say, quote, Mr. Paxton's actions are beneath the dignity of the Office of Attorney General and the people of the great state of Texas. <clears throat> it should be said, though, that the Texas AG, Ken Paxton, has also been under indict- federal indictment for felony securities fraud charges since 2015. And he's also facing some fresh criminal charges from eight of his top deputies. So what happened? Okay, so Paxton basically, you know, made this bogus allegation to the Supreme Court. He didn't enter this plea into any lower courts. He went straight to the Supreme Court because he wanted the SCOTUS to overturn the results of the election. 
Now, this was followed by, again, um, more garbage actions, okay? So there were 18 Republican state attorney generals that endorsed Paxton's move. And this was as reported in jurisprudence by Mark Joseph Stern. And so on Wednesday, 17 states endorsed Paxton's lawsuit that asked the Supreme Court to nullify millions of votes and literally, you know, gift wrap and hand Trump a second term, gift wrapped and sealed. The case was Texas versus Pennsylvania. The Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not even going to. The Supreme Court refused to even hear it. Now, Paxton, again, was asking the Supreme Court to throw out every vote in those four states that were won by Biden. That's every vote. Uh, Again, the, the gall of this is beyond belief. So here's what happened. 17 state-level attorney generals signed on to this, and this this basically um, <clears throat> this new action was spearheaded by the Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Now, their participation signals not only an egregious and seditious abuse of power, but it constitutes, in my opinion, a violation of their oath of office. <clears throat> but they're parroting Paxton's lies, basically concerning widespread fraud, and they wanted the Supreme Court to take up the case. And Schmidt and these other Republican attorney generals at the state level claimed that because voters were allowed to have absentee ballots due to the COVID pandemic, that the states essentially violated the Equal Protection Clause. Okay, it's not only a bogus argument, it's a stupid argument. So, you know, and again, why are they doing this? If the Supreme Court had agreed with Paxton and Eric Schmidt and eventually the Trump administration, then all those votes in those four states that went for Biden would have been thrown out, just like I've been warning about for the past several weeks, and because, because then their electoral count would be basically indeterminate. I mean, undetermined, then basically the GOP-controlled state legislatures of those four states would then appoint their own slate of electors to the Electoral College, and, you know, they would be loyal to Trump, and that's a way of stealing the election. So why did, excuse me, I'm sorry, why did the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, and others sign on to this illegitimate abuse of power? I mean, these are... These people all got through law school. They're reasonably intelligent. You wonder why. You know, why did a third, according to this article, the nation's attorney general decide to abuse their power to aid an overt assault on democracy? Well, the answer may be that this vile and treasonous act was an act of what was considered performative loyalty to the rabid Trump base. Okay, these are people, they're, they're still politicians in a way, and they want higher political office, so they are basically um, inciting the rabid Trump base once again. <coughs> but you have to understand something. An attorney general isn't just a regular politician. They're officers of the court, and as such, they have a specific duty to be honest to the court. And... <coughs> Sorry, I apologize to the audience. 
My asthma's been kicking up horribly today. So the problem is that any attorney general, it, it shouldn't be considered a political office. They are officers of the court. And because of that, they have an obligation, and I can hear the jokes to meet ethical standards. Attorney generals have to, again, they're officers of the court. Attorneys are not allowed to file frivolous lawsuits or lie to the courts. And the statements made in the Paxton-Schmidt lawsuit, um, you know, brought by Paxton, aided by Eric Schmidt, contains multiple statements that are proven lies. Both the Texas AG and the Missouri AG, in my opinion, should be stripped of office and disbarred, along with every other attorney general that signed on to this bogus suit, because they are attacking democracy itself and the right to vote. And the right to vote extends beyond, I've said this before, beyond the right to basically access the ballot and to actually, um, you know, basically uh, vote. It means that your ballot should be counted and that the results should be respected and obeyed, and these people have no intention of doing that. It should also be mentioned that 13 of the 17 attorney generals involved in this Paxton, Eric Schmidt coup are also affiliated with what I would call the Radical Federalist Society. And that's the same Federalist Society that's been behind the majority of election-related litigation in the past several months. So <clears throat> this includes major law firms like Jones Day, that were previously working with Trump um, as Trump was trying to basically nullify as many Democratic ballots as he possibly could. And this is something that has to stop. This isn't, this isn't an election fraud. It is massive voter suppression being, um, basic, being basically um, sponsored by the GOP. <laughs> it should be also mentioned that most of the states siding with Trump, this is the ironic part, were also formerly members of the Confederacy. So, and, and again, they're talking about, for instance, the brief itself that Paxton presented, uh, according to Twitter, Ari, uh, Ari, Ari H. Kovler, um, it appears to be ghostwritten by a lawyer that Paxton hired um, and by the name of um, John Eastman. Now, Eastman's a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, and he's also the founding director of the Claremont Institute Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, which sounds lovely in theory, but here's the thing. Eastman is a noted white supremacist. He's the one, according to Slate, that promoted lie that Kamala Harris might not be a U.S. citizen. Eastman has had decades of He's conducted a decades-long quest to strip millions of non-white Americans of their citizenship if they're the children of immigrants. Um, The Federal Society has continued to invite Eastman to debate. So, you know, the fact when people claim this isn't about racism, that's bogus. Of course it is. So the radicalization of these conservative lawyers isn't just that they're radical. It's that they have basically conducted sedition and treason against the Constitution that they swore to protect. Now, again, we know that uh, NBC News' Pete Williams broke the story. Supreme Court rejected Texas' effort to overturn the election. We know that. Um, The court ruled that Texas had no legal right to challenge how other states conduct their elections, which is obvious. 
and it should be noted, never before has any state proposed interfering in another state's, um, you know, state laws, another state's laws regarding elections. Um, so, you know, once again, the states involved spoke out. Um, Pennsylvania spoke out against the Texas lawsuit, um, said, quote, Texas has not suffered harm simply because it dislikes the results of the election and nothing in the text history or structure of the Constitution supports Texas' views that it can dictate the manner in which four other states run their election. Um, so the other battleground states, um, they, they all basically spoke out about it. Um, Paxton suit, though, brought on these other attorney generals. And it is a dangerous stunt. You know, uh, law experts have condemned it as such as um, discussed um, in various, various uh, uh, publications. So, uh, you know, moving on, we've got Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama who has this rabid rant um, where he erroneously claims that, quote, Congress is the judge, jury, and final arbiter of the 2020 presidential election contest. And he went on to say, further, America's election system is, play, is plagued by systemic flaws that promote voter, voter fraud and election theft. Except for one thing. I don't know what constitution Mo Brooks is talking about. Here he is a lawyer, but this, this, this rant that he has has no, no basis in reality or in the constitution itself. So this is really, um, it's been called by Alex Henderson, a window for subversion. And it is, okay? You know, he couldn't win, so he wanted to overthrow it, overthrow the results of the election. And that's what this lawsuit's about. Ken Paxton started it, Missouri AG Eric Schmidt and a bunch of other AGs joined on to add to it. It's really the intent is to not only invalidate these votes, but to really subvert our right to have our votes count, our right to actually vote in elections and have the results respected and obeyed. And that's what it is. Um, you know, Paxton is the first attorney general to ask the Supreme Court to facilitate such a scheme. It is the single biggest act of voter nullification, proposed voter nullification, that is, in American history, it would, if Paxton and Schmidt had gotten their way, it would have basically invalidated millions of ballots. And that should make anybody who cares about democracy absolutely livid. So uh, there's more here. I can't get through all of it tonight, but there's a bigger danger behind these frivolous cases. And this was reported in Common Dreams by Jake, Jad, Jake Johnson. <coughs> Um, basically, one of the quotes was, were the Supreme Court to agree to hear this meritless suit brought by Texas, you might as well toss the Constitution, and it's true. So Mark Joseph Stern of Slate was quoted as saying, the president will leave the White House on January 20th. The conservative attorneys who have become radicalized under his influence, however, will remain in power across the country. And it's these state-level attorney generals that pose at least as big a danger to democracy itself, as Donald Trump has. And that includes the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt. The lawsuit was mocked by election log blog as utter garbage. It was, and also called factually untethered by legal experts as reported by the Washington 
Post. Um, you know, again, Republican Attorney Generals of Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, and West Virginia backed Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt's amicus brief that supported Ken Paxton's Texas lawsuit that would have us throw out the results of the election because they want a dictator for life, in my opinion. You know, the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Kristen Clark, um, basically said that the brief reads like a rally speech, and she's the one that said, were the Supreme Court to agree to hear this meritless um, lawsuit, uh, meritless suit brought by Texas, we might as well toss the, the Constitution. And that's where we're at right now. Um, this is, there, there's absolutely no, no merit to this. In fact, another conservative, former Missouri Senator, John Danforth, called out Eric Schmidt, and he used a term that was popularized by the late Antonin Scalia, not exactly a liberal himself. He called it jiggery-pokery, okay? And that's basically saying that it's pure garbage with no merit and, you know, are basically as much merit as what comes out of the behind of my dog when she does her business. And so Danforth filed a brief himself. Uh, part of the brief said, quote, plaintiff's motions make, make a mockery of federalism and separation of powers. It would violate the most fundamental constitutional principles for this court to serve as a trial court for presidential election disputes, end quote. Um, so... And, and Eric Schmidt, you know, again, this guy, you can't believe him. Schmidt said in a statement that, quote, election and integrity is central to our republic, and I will defend it at every turn, end quote. I don't know how Attorney, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt can say that statement with a straight face, but he did. Trump's lost more than 50 cases so far in courts across the country. They've offered no, zero proof as to any fraud, much less widespread fraud. And so, you know, this is what we're digging with right now. And, you know, Danforth said, quote, this jiggery-pokery is contradicted by the elector's clause. And the jiggery-pokery is really considered a big Republican insult. Uh, Antonin Scalia used it to ridicule colleagues instead of just calling them liars or deceitful. <clears throat> Eric Schmidt is also the AG who sued China earlier, um, claiming that China was responsible for the economic wreckage that the coronavirus caused in Missouri. The Chinese have ignored his suit. <clears throat> so now, <clears throat> sorry folks, just asthma. So, we're getting down to the end part of this, okay? You know, it's bad enough, this lawsuit. But now, you know, besides it being seditious abuse of judicial process, now we have nutcases, in my opinion, like GOP head in Texas, Alan West, and others calling for these states to, calling for succession. In other words, for these states that were previously part of the Confederacy, Confederacy to once again succeed from the Union, to leave the United States. And earlier today, Media Matters uh, published a piece written by Zachary Pleat, and it basically, you know, the headline was, right-wing media and Trump supporters encourage succession, martial law after Supreme Court defeat. 
this is not only sedition, this is treason. Okay, when you're talking about succeeding from the union, you know, we fought a civil war over this. That is treason. That's saying that you're refusing to abide by the Constitution. And then we come very quickly down to Cong- Congressman Pesquerel, who has, as far as I'm concerned, close to being a, a hero as possible. He has asked Speaker Pelosi to refuse to seat members of the next Congress who have backed this election challenge. All right. And he cites part of the 14th Amendment, okay, that it prohibits members of Congress from rebelling against the U.S. and, quote, trying to overturn a Democratic election and install a dictator seems like a pretty clear example of that. So the 14th Amendment does forbid members of Congress from engaging in rebellion against the U.S. Um, and that's what these Republicans have done, including Mo Brooks, Eric Schmidt, the whole lot of them. So, you know, we have this insanity going on, and we can't allow this to stand. In fact, Pasquale cited the, 14th, the part of the 14th Amendment that backs this up is called Section 3. And it clearly states that no elected member, quote, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or its varying governing bodies, end quote. Pasquale was also quoted as saying the text of the 14th Amendment expressed, um, I'm sorry, ex- well, I just said that. Okay, so, and trying to overturn democratic election to install a dictator is a pretty clear example of basically a rebellion against the United States. And by rebellion against the United States, we're talking about rebellion against the Constitution. Um, so Pascal urged Pelosi to take action. To quote him, he said, I call on you to exercise the power of your offices to evaluate steps you can take to address these constitutional violations as Congress, and if possible, refuse to seat in the 117th Congress any members elect seeking to make Donald Trump an unelected dictator, end quote. And Pascal went on to say in a dear colleague letter that Republicans, through the lawsuits, they're, quote, engaged in election subversion that imperils our democracy. Republicans are subverting, subverting the Constitution by their reckless and fruitless assault on our democracy, which threatens to seriously erode public trust in our most sacred democratic institutions and to set back our progress on the urgent challenges. Well, I'm sorry, that's what Pelosi said back. Okay, so give me a break here. Okay, so that's what Pelosi said, but these Republicans are engaged in subversion. They are trying to basically destroy the idea of a public vote, destroy the idea of democratic, democratically elected representatives itself. And that's my report. Wow, that is, that is some uh, hard-hitting stuff. Uh, we've only got a few seconds left, Janine, so I, wa- I just want to thank you for a great report tonight, and we'll see you again next week. Also, Thursdays, the Environmental Justice Report, and uh, we'll see you guys uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, Janine. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. And we'll see you guys next week, too.